Hey everybody, before we get started, I just wanted to jump on because we are so excited to announce that Restore Registration is officially open. We can't wait to be with you again this year. It's going to be on September 5th through 7th at the Mountain America Expo Center in Sandy, Utah. That's the evening of September 5th and then all day on the 6th and the 7th. Three days of incredible speakers, poets, musicians, and artists. We really think that what we have planned will blow you away again this year, so you won't want to miss it. Go to faithmatters.org slash restore for tickets and we'll see you there. Hey everybody, before we get started, I just wanted to tell you about a new book from Faith Matters Publishing. It's called Restoration by Patrick Mason. Um, When we started the Faith Matters Publishing Project, one of our goals was to explore what restoration really means as the church moves into its third century, and that's exactly what Patrick does. If you're like me and you've ever wondered how restoring Israel can be relevant to you, you've got to read this book. Patrick shows how, as members of the church, it's our mission to truly lead out in bringing wholeness and healing to the marginalized and the vulnerable. This book absolutely lit a fire for me, and it has totally changed the way I view my own engagement with the church and with the world. I really can't recommend this book strongly enough. It's the kind of book you want everyone you know to be reading too, so that you can talk about it. So you can pick up a copy for yourself or for your friends and family at Desert Book, um, Amazon, Audible, and Apple Books. Okay, that's it on the book for now, but we'll be sharing a lot more in the near future. Thanks as always, and here's the episode. Hi, and welcome to the Faith Matters Podcast. This is Tim Chavez. In this episode, we speak with Adam Miller, professor of philosophy at Collin College in McKinney, Texas, and author of several books, including Letters to a Young Mormon, published by Deseret Book. We got to speak with Adam on the subject of sin. Adam has a really unique perspective on this. To quote his book, he says, God's work in your life is bigger than the story you'd like that life to tell. His life is bigger than your plans, goals, or fears. To save your life, you'll have to lay down your stories and minute by minute, day by day, give your life back to him. Preferring your stories to his life is sin. Ever since we first read that, Aubrey and I knew that we had to have Adam on to talk more about it. This was a really fun conversation for us to have, and we hope that you enjoy it. Okay, my name is Aubrey Chavez, and I'm here with my husband, Tim. And today, we're so excited to have Adam Miller with us. Uh, Adam is a professor of philosophy at Collin College in McKinney, Texas. He earned his BA in comparative literature from BYU and an MA and PhD in philosophy from Villanova University. He's the author of eight books, including um, Letters to a Young Mormon, which we'll be hopefully talking a little bit about today. Um, So Adam, thank you so much for talking with us. We've been really, really looking forward to this interview. My pleasure. Thanks for the work that you do with Faith Matters. Yeah. Absolutely. And Adam, if it's okay, we'd love to um, introduce our listeners a little bit more to, to you and your, your background, your personal faith journey. Um, if you wouldn't mind just kind of telling us more about, you know, what you've, what you've uh, gone through faith-wise throughout your life, you know, from growing up to, to kind of where you are now and how, how, you've navigated, uh, how, how you've navigated, in particular, your faith life. Well, I... Uh grew up in the church in Pennsylvania. My father grew up in the church. My mother joined the church after she married my father. Um, Very small church experience. When I was a teenager, we lived uh, in a branch uh, in Northern Pennsylvania. We met in a small house that the church owned that was repurposed for uh, church meetings. We had sacrament meeting in the living room and Sunday school in the bedroom and priesthood, of course, in the kitchen. Of course uh, 
and there was maybe 30 to you know 30 50 people there on sunday uh, but if you didn't come everyone noticed uh, and something didn't get done uh, and it was a very from the beginning i think it was a very do-it-yourself mormon experience for me that i found from the beginning to be pretty empowering right that the church for me growing up wasn't a big monolithic thing up in salt lake city the church for me growing up was a house that was repurposed for 30 to 50 people who were in many ways uh, clearly making it up uh, as we went along uh, just just to do it from week to week uh, and so uh, I've always I've always kind of felt empowered to to do that as I went right to yeah to think for myself and to make my own decisions and to to do the best I could with what I had and to keep my expectations for how it was supposed to look and how it was supposed to work to keep those expectations realistic and and to find in the process itself a lot of the beauty of what it means to be a Latter Day Saint. That's interesting. Now, what, did you um? So did you remain in that sort of rural setting throughout your teenage years and your first experience going into a, a larger you know, church community? Was that, it was in college or how did that, how did that transition happen? Uh, I did, we were in that branch the entire time I was in high school. Uh, after that, I attended uh, the University of Pittsburgh for a year before my mission of branch campus where I was the only member of oh. the church. Uh, and during that semester, uh, I took over spring break. Uh, I took a trip out to Utah to BYU for the very first time. Uh, and it was a little bit of a revelation <laughs> I can uh, to me. Uh, and I'd, I'd, chosen, I'd chosen to go to that branch campus of Pitt mostly because they wanted me to play basketball. Uh, but after that trip to BYU, I, I decided that after I returned from my mission, I would prefer to go on a date rather than play basketball, which was, which was a tougher choice than it probably should have been. Uh, so, you know, maybe my, you know, my mission, of course, I served my mission in Albuquerque, and that was a bit of an introduction to, to, for me to, to a larger experience of the church. Uh, but I think it was really coming back from my mission and spending those couple of years at BYU that I got a feel for, for the church as something bigger. Yeah, that's did interesting. You did you feel like your faith development was fairly constant or, or did you have a particular turning point where you sort of adjusted your understanding of the gospel and and your relationship with it or has it been pretty steady um i would describe it as a pretty steady process of transformation mm -hmm. um i came back to byu after my mission wanting to study religion I'm uh, looking for some way to do that, uh, and I majored in comparative literature as an undergrad, and then I ended up doing my graduate work, as he said, my master's and PhD in philosophy and theology from Villanova. But I, I, feel, I feel like that kind of professional academic training in thinking about religion and thinking philosophically about big issues about what it means for something to even be real or what it means for something to be good or what it means for something to be true. What does that even mean in the first place? Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of that philosophical work uh, kind of prepped me with the, with the tools I would need to be more flexible and open-ended with my own experience of faith as it, as it grew and changed. Uh, 
it's deepened, I think, in important ways over time, but I think it's also, it's also kind of narrowed in important ways over the time. And, and a lot of the things I might have worried about as a 21-year-old as a return missionary are not, are not, uh, tend not to be issues that I find especially relevant to my experience as a Latter-day Saint now. Yeah. Now, it's interesting to me, I'm curious how Letters to a Young Mormon came to be because your experience, it sounds like this sort of overriding sense of individuality and flexibility is quite different than a lot of you know, members of the church that just grew up right smack dab in the center of Utah, like, like I did, for instance. And uh, I feel like maybe in the, in the culture that I was raised in, there is more of a, uh, more of a general sense of conformity and correlation and rigidity perhaps and it and it seems like your book the letters to a young mormon is written so perfectly to address the sort of thoughts and feelings that someone like me that came out of that culture is having that it almost seems like you must you must have a deep understanding of it or or did it come you know did it come about from some other some other direction the the church is still the church uh, even in even in pennsylvania yeah uh, or even in albuquerque uh, and so, you know, this, that desire to, to fit in, to measure up, especially to please people in positions of power and authority, uh, both church leaders and thinking about God in that same way, uh, those were certainly fundamental parts of my religious experience too. Uh, but I think, you know, and that's, that's not a bad place to start necessarily uh but i i suspect that in the end that's not a very satisfying place to live your religious life so we were hoping to sort of focus this conversation specifically on sin because your your uh chapter on letters to young mormon about sin was so interesting and and felt really different than my understanding of what sin is altogether and so um you know, I think we kind of came from this idea that you get baptized and you're perfect and you try to make it through the day without, you know, yelling at your little brother or sister and then you, and then you've sinned and then you feel really guilty and then you repent and then you're back to zero again. And you, you know, and you just, you're just kind of constantly fighting this battle of, of falling short of God's expectations and then feeling terrible. And then you get back up into his good graces and, Anyway, and, and so I loved your, um, I, I loved your, I felt like you had a really different way of looking at, at what sin is completely. So could you just sort of give us an overview for someone who hasn't, hasn't read the book or for someone who did and is still trying to figure it out, what is sin? Well, I, I would include myself in the category of people who are still trying <laughs> to figure it out. Uh, I mean, my, my own thoughts on this are a work in progress. Uh, but I think I think it's important and helpful to make uh, a distinction between two different kinds of sin, or between sin operating at two different levels. Right? Uh, on the one hand, there's the way that we normally talk about sin in terms of our breaking individual commandments uh, and ways that end up hurting us or hurting other people, uh, and that's that's a problem, and we we should pay attention to those sorts of problems. Uh, but I think there's, a, there's a, a deeper, more global problem with respect to sin that has to do not with our just breaking particular commandments, particular elements of the law, 
but that has to do with the way that we're positioned in relationship to the law as a whole, right? There's a, there's a way in which sin at root has more to do with the way I'm holding the law and what I'm trying to do with the law than it has to do with particular commandments I'm I'm happen to be I happen to be good at keeping or not. Uh, and I tried to describe this partly in the book in terms of the way that we all have a kind of story we want our lives to tell, right? We have a kind of vision of how the pieces are supposed to fit together, uh, what's, what's supposed to happen next, uh, what kind of rewards we're supposed to get on the basis of the, of the goals that we've achieved or what kinds of punishments we're supposed to get on the basis of the things we didn't succeed at. And all those things are supposed to add up to a kind of story about what our lives are supposed to look like and how they're supposed to go. Um, and everybody has different, different versions of those stories that are made out of bits and pieces that you pick up at church or from your family or from magazines or from television or uh, from uh, capitalism writ large, uh, whatever, right? A thousand, different, a thousand different sources. We're going to patch these stories together for ourselves about what our lives are supposed to look like. Uh, and religion, religion in the end is the kind of thing that happens that really, that really gains traction in those moments in our lives when uh, the stories collide with those lives, right? When we discover that our lives are much bigger and much messier and in some ways much more beautiful and much more substantial than the story, the little teeny story that we were trying to use that life to tell. Um, and when in, those, when in those religious moments of, uh, uh, of, of contradiction, of, of conflict, we end up choosing our version of our stories about how our lives are supposed to go over the actual robust and messy life that God is trying to give us, uh, that's called sin. And when we let go of our version of our stories of how our lives are supposed to go and surrender them to God and accept instead the big, messy, beautiful, substantial life he's trying to give, that's what a religious life looks like. That's what a life in Christ looks like. Oh. Can you talk, I have 1,000 questions, but can you talk about, can you talk more about the law and, and using the law in your story? I, I, um, I really liked that part in that chapter, and, but if you could explain it a little more. So uh, the idea is that the law, the law can, be your, can be your sin just by the way that you're interacting with it, I guess is, is what you were saying, right? So you, you can use the law to feel good about yourself because you're, you're meeting those standards. And in that sense, it could be a sin, even though you're keeping those rules, or you can use the law to feel bad and feel like the law is accusing you. And, and in that sense, it's still, you're still trying to tell this story. Is that, can you talk about that? Am I getting, is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think you're, I think you're on the right track. Uh, the way that we normally think about sin in terms of breaking individual commandments, I think is, is kind of thinking, thinking about sin in terms of symptoms. Right? The fact that I tend to break particular commandments in particular ways on a regular basis, those are symptoms uh, of a, a deeper problem in terms of how I'm in a fundamental way positioned in relationship to the law, right? in terms of what it is that I'm trying to do with the law or by way of the law. And so that there are sins, plural, um, that I think are symptoms uh, of a deeper problem that, that we could just describe as, as sin. 
uh, singular, which is the kind of language I think that we get in, in Paul's epistles, right? Paul, Paul doesn't tend to talk about sins plural so much as he talks about sin singular as this kind of deeper problem out of which the symptoms grow. Now, I think we can, I think we can pretty, pretty neatly describe the difference between a sinful relationship to the law and a Christian relationship to the law in terms of what you're using the law to do. Uh, in a sinful relationship to the law, I think what you're using the law to do is that you're using the law to tell a story about what you or other people deserve. Now, you may be using the, you may be using the law to tell a story about the fact that you deserve bad things because you're a bad person, or you may be using the law to tell a story about how other people deserve bad things because they're bad people. Or you might be using the law to tell a story about how you're a good person and thus you deserve good things. Um, but whenever you're using the law to tell any kind of story, good or bad, about who deserves what, then I think you're positioned in relationship to the law in a way that is fundamentally sinful. What a Christian relationship to the law looks like, I think, uh, is instead of using the law to tell a story about what people deserve on the basis of their past actions, what happens is that you start instead to use the law as a way of deciding what is needed here and now in light of life's circumstances. So that the law becomes a kind of guide, uh, a, kind of, a kind of guide in the work of love rather than a, fundamentally a tool of, of reward or punishment. Wow. Uh, and that in the end, I think is the only way to actually fulfill the law because the law can only be fulfilled by love. Uh, and love's fundamental job is to respond to what's needed regardless of whether or not people do or don't deserve uh, the kind of help that they need. Now we can, I think we can, add a, we can add a quick addendum here and say, now what some people need in some circumstances is to be punished. Uh, <laughs> but if what they need is to be punished, uh, then you punish them because they need it, not because that's what they deserve. Uh, and those are two very different ways of, of understanding and approaching the law. Um, and undergoing that kind of basic transformative shift in our relationship to the law is that uh, conversion, I think, at the heart of the Christian experience. Mm. Now, I'm, I'm interested. I love that phrase that the, that the law is a guide in the, in the work of love. I, it makes me question, though, um, you know, if we break the law into individual commandments, there are some, uh, I, I think, you know, it's easy to look at most commandments and say, yeah, there's a, there's a way to trace this back to love, you know, pretty straightforward. But at the same time, there are some commandments that may seem a bit arbitrary, you know, that maybe, um, maybe, especially, maybe less in the New Testament, but especially like, if you look at the law of Moses, you know, which we're not living today, but were the, was that law a guide in the work of love as well? Or is that, uh, is that, is that something else entirely? And if, and, and if someone were to look at a commandment today and, and not be able to trace those steps back to love, then, you know, why does that commandment exist? Or are they just missing how it does trace back to love? Well, I think the law of Moses is a pretty good example of, of the law. Uh, used as a tool for the sake of love, or at least, or at least it can be, or it could have been. Paul's pretty explicit about the fact that that he saw the law of Moses as a schoolmaster uh, to, to train us up to tutor us uh, in the work of love. Clearly, the the law of Moses is a is a much more uh, elaborate 
uh, especially ritual system than the kind of thing that you and I rely on religion for uh, in our day, in our day, in our time and place. Uh, but I think a lot of it has to do with the way that, the, uh, especially if you're nomads living in the desert, uh, the work of love requires a lot of scaffolding. It requires just a lot of kind of social, cultural scaffolding. Uh, for the sake of creating the kind of binding communities in which love can freely circulate. Uh, you, you need just kind of minimum infrastructure uh, for love to circulate and communities to form. Uh, and a lot of that infrastructure in, in terms of the Old Testament was, was simply not available in any other way at the time or the place. Right? You and I can rely on all kinds of infrastructure in terms of our social cultural relationships the church itself doesn't have to provide. Uh, whereas the law of Moses, in, in a sense, had to bootstrap the whole community into existence from, from ground zero. Uh, and so I think our, our religious experience in terms of what we need in terms of religious laws uh, can be more spare and compact and compressed and flexible and, and less ritually rigid. Uh, because we don't, religion in general doesn't have to do the same kind of work in my life as it had to do in the life of a, of a sixth century Palestinian Jew. Uh, but in either but in either case, I think uh, it's not hard to read what's at stake in the law, uh, at least potentially, uh, as tools that are available for the work of love. Uh, and I think it's pretty clear from the perspective of the scriptures, uh, and Jesus hammers home this point again and again, uh, that regardless of the details of the law, the only way to fulfill the law is by way of love. Uh, and if sometimes the details of the law get in the way of the work of love, then then Jesus set a pretty clear example of of uh, being being flexible with how he treated those details. So I would love to hear you talk more about that. What what happens when you really do feel like the law is at odds with the the work of love? How does obedience in your mind play into this this um, well into into that kind of sin that you're talking about? Or is there a place for obedience? You know, what, what do you trust? Do you trust the law or do you trust your, your, your conscience or the spirit? Or what, what is it that you, that you listen to when, you're, when it feels like there's a conflict and it's, it's not a clear, you know, thou shalt not steal or kill or, you know, things that are obviously going to help you love your, your fellow men better. That makes sense. But when it doesn't feel that way, then, then what? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I think I think one of the things that love that the work of love depends on in the end, one of the things it depends most deeply on, uh, is our willingness to inhabit a place of profound humility. On the one hand, a kind of profound humility in terms of my own grasp of the situation and what God wants and and how uh, how clearly I do or don't understand what the law is asking for and why it's asking for it, right? So for instance, if I, if I find myself in a position of, uh, of disagreement with the position that the church has taken, then I think the work of love enjoins me, first of all, to, to be pretty humble in the face of what I can do in light of what prophets and apostles are saying. On the other hand, I think it's that humility extends not just, in, not just to my relationship to the church, uh, but that humility ought to extend uh, in terms of my humility in the face of the complexity of the human experience. Uh, 
And I think it's, it's pretty obviously, pretty clearly true uh, that lots of times are, uh, are very useful, very powerful, prophetically given principles uh, need to be tailored to the complexity of the human experience, uh, both in terms of our individual relationships and in terms of the church's own ongoing position in relationship to the, to the complexity of these issues. I remember, um, I wish I had the quote with me, uh, but I, I remember that there was a, a teaching that I think was from uh, Bruce R. McConkie that talked about Jesus and his, um, his interactions with the Sabbath day and you know, was accused by the Pharisees of, of breaking the Sabbath. But it seemed like what he was doing with his apostles was truly in the service of love. And the response, I believe, from, uh, from Bruce R. McConkie was that, and I can't remember exactly how the logic worked, was that it was impossible that Jesus would have broken the law. And that there was, there was some way in which Jesus both kept the law perfectly and um, you know, served the, the work of love. Is that, and I'm curious if that's the way you see it, like, is there a situation, is there any situation in which breaking the law and the work of love um, coincide, or does the work of love always go hand in hand with the, with the law? If, if we take it as a given that at least that we understand the law and that the law is what God, you know, has truly commanded in a general sense. I mean, it's not as if I'm in a position to speak authoritatively about <laughs> Jesus's own life and what he did or didn't do or why he did or, or didn't do it. Uh, but, but that's never stopped me from, from saying things before. Uh, I mean, I think I, I can't make any sense uh, of a Christian life lived from the inside out in terms of perfectly and relentlessly matching my life up in every detail to a set of uh, prescribed in advance uh, rules about what to, what to do and exactly how to do it. That doesn't make any sense to me in terms of the description uh, of a religious life that's, that's filled with a kind of vibrant living connection with mm -hmm. God. Again, clearly we need, we need some scaffolding to live that kind of life and those commandments are helpful. But, but if, you live, if you live your Christian life from that perspective, I don't see how that's a Christian life at all. In fact, it seems to me to be uh, in lots of ways fundamentally opposed to the kinds of transformation that, that in Christ puts us in proper relationship to the law. Uh, maybe it's the case that, that Jesus uh, Jesus's thoughts and feelings and actions never once uh, ran afoul of, of all of the details prescribed by the law. Uh, but to me, it seems as if the important thing to say would be something like, Jesus, uh, no matter what he did, was never wrongly positioned in relationship to the law. Uh, and, and in that respect, whatever he did was the right thing to do. Uh, he did whatever was needed uh, in that moment, regardless of the person he, who he was with did or didn't deserve it, uh, and regardless of what it did or didn't cost him, uh, he did what was needed. And that's what the law requires uh, in order to fulfill its end in love. So I, I'm curious how you, um, what you recognize as the law. I mean, are, 
do you take the, the scriptures and it's just any, anything you find in the scriptures or, or are, I mean, are we talking about one general overarching principle or, or are you talking about 10 commandments and, and, you know, advice you get in Sunday school? Like what, what is the law? Yeah, I'm comfortable, of course, with the conception of the law that's maybe centered on something like the Ten Commandments. I'm comfortable with the conception of the law that's the, that includes all your standard temple recommend type okay. questions. Uh, I'm comfortable with the conception of the law that that kind of bleeds out uh, into all the different all the different uh, expectations and. Uh, uh, rules and laws that shape our social relationships and smooth those connections with other people. Um, I would probably, for philosophical reasons, tend to think about the law in something more like a common law fashion uh, that grows out of tradition itself in a, in a way that is a little bit messy and empirical and a work mm -hmm. in progress than something that was decided before the world began and handed down univocally from on high as an ideal to which my life must then conform. Uh, wow. I think the law is something, the law itself is something real and alive and, and substantial and that is part of the world with us rather than something that's separate from the world used to judge it. Wow. So in that, um, maybe this is a really good place to talk about guilt then. And, and I think, I think we have language in the church for, for guilt and shame. You know, like we call it godly sorrow. It's like, we talk about it like it's this thing we're supposed to feel. So will you, will you talk about that? And do you think that God gives us those, that feeling of guilt and shame to help us repent or what? And if not, what is the catalyst for, for repentance or for, for some kind of change that will help you to be more in alignment with that, that love? Well, guilt and shame can be can be a positive thing. They can be part of the story of my transformation. They can be uh, like the experience of pain, uh, a call to change and do something different and be something different and and shift uh, in a fundamental way my relationship to the law and the story of my life and the expectations that I have in order to better need in order then to better meet the needs of uh, of the people that I love and the people around me and even my own, my own life, my own body, my own spirit. It's also, I think, pretty clear that things like guilt and shame can often do exactly the opposite sort of work. That I can experience that pain that arises from a mismatch between my story about my life and how my life is actually going. I can use that pain in ways not to meet the needs of my life, but instead to uh, uh, to make things worse, right? They can, I can, it can, that kind of pain can end up fixating me on myself and on my own worthiness and on what I do or don't deserve in a way that deepens the problem of sin rather than waking me up to it. But it doesn't, it doesn't matter whether I'm using the law to decide, oh, I really am in good shape and I deserve whatever kinds of blessings God gives, or whether I'm using the law to say, I don't deserve any of this and God should take it all away. If I'm using the law to decide who deserves what, I'm using it in a sinful way. Uh, and if guilt is part of that story, 
uh, either in my own experience or imputing it to other people, uh, then the law uh, is, con is confirming me in my sinfulness rather than liberating me from it. Wow. So in, in your mind then, where is sort of the inflection point um, between a, I guess what you might call a healthy use of guilt, something that um, drives you to become better or something that, you know, um, either spirals into a, a, a consistent sort of self-image mm -hmm. of, of shame or something that like, like you're saying that leaves you uh, positioned wrongly relative to, uh, relative to you know, the, the life that, that God has for you. Like wh when we're speaking in practical terms, how do you, how do you actually use the feelings of guilt or godly sorrow that you have in a productive way? Yeah. I think, I think we could take the following as a rule of thumb. Uh, if my experience of guilt uh, turns my attention, uh, fixes my attention even more firmly on myself, then I'm in trouble, mm. right? If my experience of guilt turns my attention away from me and toward the people who I feel guilty about having hurt, uh, mm. then it's, it's working in the right way. It's turning me in the right direction. Right? If, it, if, it, if it turns me back toward myself, then I'm going to be stuck in this loop of asking questions about what I do or don't deserve, right? And that is itself the, the satanic loop, right? The loop of accusation, right? The word Satan literally means the accuser. Satan is the one who gets you stuck in this loop of accusation uh, in which you're always trying to decide who does or doesn't deserve what, maybe yourself especially included, right? But if that experience of guilt wakes me up to the fact that I've been hurting someone else, and then motivates me to change my relationship to them such that I'm not hurting them anymore, but meeting whatever needs it is that they have, uh, then that kind of outward, that outward spinning turn that follows from my experience of guilt will have been godly sorrow. Uh, if not, we could describe it, I think, as a kind of satanic sorrow that just locks you in that loop and makes, makes religion about you. Uh, when the whole point of your religious experience is to make, is to make your life not about you anymore, uh, and a lot of the liberation that we experience in terms of uh, living a Christian life follows from not having to live my life anymore under the burden of making it be about me and making it be about my story turning out the way I wanted it to. I love that. And if we're speaking from like a pure nomenclature, uh, nomenclature standpoint, um, Brene Brown has done a lot of work on, uh, on shame and her definition, and Aubrey, correct me if I'm wrong, because you know this stuff better than I do, but uh, of guilt is that for her guilt is I did something wrong or I did something bad and for her shame is I am bad and so that's almost that that's almost that inflection point that you're speaking about to me where guilt where you did something bad that's that's externally focused it's on the it's on the action that that affected someone else and I am bad that's you know that's shame that's internally focused and therefore unproductive and I think that's in line with what Brene is saying that she she says guilt is okay because it helps you become better. Shame is an internal spiral of negativity. Am I getting that right, Aubrey? For Brene, that sounds like Brene Brown to me. <laughs> but yeah. also, it's, it, it feels like kind of an energy thing, too. I mean, that kind of guilt or the shame, I guess, Tim, that you're talking about, that to me feels like so draining. Like, I can't be better because I just, it just like sucks the life out of me. And, and I think that whatever you want to call it, maybe it's guilt, but, but, that feels more energizing. Like I want to get out and I want to fix it and or 
change something to do better. And that feels like a, that feels like a totally different energy to me. So I like that. I like that differentiation. Yeah. Yeah. The, the energetics are profoundly different. Yeah. 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 Now, Adam, you, we can't really speak about sin. I don't think without also talking about, um, without talking about punishment. Um, I think from a very uh, traditional standpoint, sin is sort of a, a fork in the road where either you uh, repent and you, like Aubrey said at the end, you get back into God's good graces or you don't repent and you're headed toward, and you're headed toward punishment. Um, and it, and in, in some way, I think in at least a traditional Christian point of view, that punishment is not necessarily just a natural consequence. It's not just uh, something bad that happened to you or someone else because of what you did naturally. It's actually, you know, projected into the future. It's some kind of, you know, it depends on the religion, how, how you actually imagine this, but there's some hellfire and damnation that's coming later at, that's inflicted upon you separate from the, the natural consequence of, um, of the hurt that you caused. Is, and I'm curious, Adam, if that's, uh, if that's the way you see it, like is, is sin, and actually Richard Rohr um, in his book that I finished recently called The Universal Christ, he uh, talks about this. And one of the ways that he phrases it is that he believes we're punished by our sins rather than punished for our sins. So he's making an argument on the, on the side of natural consequences. Do you have, do you have thoughts around the subject? Yeah, I, I would lean in that direction for sure that we are punished by our sins uh, much more than for our sins. Um, though I think that, I think it's fair to say that that's, that's the majority position in the Christian tradition at large. Uh, Augustine, Aquinas, Luther, all the way through up, all the way up through here, uh, that the majority position is that sin is itself uh, its own punishment. Uh, that uh, even if you could get away with your sins, quote unquote, uh, you wouldn't want to do it because doing it is itself the thing that you didn't want to get. Uh, yeah. I think that's true. Though for me, I mean, I would, I would want to push it uh, maybe a step farther in terms of what we'd already said. That if I'm thinking about punishment uh, as what is deserved as a result of my having acted in a certain way, uh, then I'm probably thinking about the law in general in the wrong way. Yeah. If I'm thinking about the law in terms of a mechanism for rewarding and punishing people, then I have from the start misunderstood how the law works. And I've misunderstood how the law works in a way that will prevent me from ever fulfilling the law. Because if I use the law to divide the world up into people who do or don't deserve my help, then I will never be capable of the kind of love that actually could fulfill the law. Mm. Uh, so you get, you get stuck in a kind of trap there in terms of how you're using the law in a way that prevents you from ever actually fulfilling it. And that I think is a pretty good description of sin. Wow, yeah, that's so, that is so profound. So what about the atonement? What, can you talk about the role that the atonement plays and what that actually looks like in our life? Is, is this, well, I, I don't know, wherever you wanna take that. I just, I'd like to hear the atonement applied to this, this way of understanding sin. Well, I think the atonement, the atonement is a, is a description uh, uh, of how Christ makes possible this fundamental change in my relationship to the law mm. and how Christ makes it possible for me to fulfill the law in him in a way that frees me from the burden of the law and thus empowers me to fulfill the law. 
right? As long as I experience the law as a kind of burden in terms of reward and punishment, in terms of whether the law can help me to, to fulfill my story or not fulfill my story, then I'll be stuck. Uh, but what, what Christ accomplishes by way of the atonement is, is opening a door to a change in my experience of the law that allows me to no longer carry it as a burden, but instead to take up a different kind of yoke with him, which is not the yoke of succeeding or failing, uh, but the work of loving, which you can't measure in terms of succeeding or failing. Wow. So how do you get past this idea of your own story? Because I get that that is, I think you, at some point you talk about it like it's a shadow. You see, that's in the book where you talk about the shadow, right? Like it, it that, I love that analogy because it just, it's so much a part of me. Like it, it's so hard to like rethink, like what am I, what do I need to be because of like my own ego? And, and so how do you, it just like everyday things, how do you separate yourself from, from that kind of form and like, you know, needing to live up to this thing that you've created? I, and, and maybe specifically, I would love to hear you talk about prayer because that's where I, that's where I, I feel like it gets really muddy for me. Like I want to pray to, to ask God to fix and change and tweak these things so that my story is more my story. And like that just, I get that like that doesn't work. So how do you pray? Like, what do you pray for? Or, or for me, it started to look more contemplative because I don't know what to, I don't know how to ask I don't know how to how to separate what's my story and what's what if, and and this idea of just like reorienting my life around complete acceptance and love without asking and and I don't know how to ask for change and be oriented that way you know so help me <laughs> well, that was that was 15 very good questions <laughs> uh. this is my ultimate question for Adam Miller like I've been dying to ask you this for like a year um. I think you're right that e ego is something like my attachment to my story. Ego is something like my attempt to identify with my story. Mm -hmm. uh, when my story is always going to be uh, way too small and, and fragile a thing to ever, ever hold something like the, the, the messy complexity of a real, substantial, beautiful human life. Yeah. Uh, but right, e the ego is the attempt to force my life to fit that, that narrow mold. Um, and there's a, there's a lot of, there's a lot of attachment, uh, that gets wrapped up in that. Mm -hmm. Uh, now your question was, um, uh, losing my thread here. Just daily thing. Like, what does it actually look like? Like, like boots on the ground. How do you not just stay so attached? Right. Right. Prayer. Okay. Uh, you're not number one. You're not, you're not going to get rid of your story. You're not going to get rid of stories, right? To, to get rid of stories altogether would be to no longer be a human being. Part of being a human being, part of being a human being is that your mind is just, is going to endlessly, relentlessly generate these stories, these scenarios, these little fabricated uh, uh, fantasies in which your desires and worries uh, uh, get played out in advance. Uh, the law is itself something like uh, a mutually codified story. Uh, and those are fine, stories are fine, we, right? The, the law itself embodies the set of ideals for how we would like a life to, to unfold. And that's good, we need them, we have to have them. 
And again, we wouldn't be human without the law. We wouldn't be human without these stories. Mm. But the trouble arises again uh, in terms of when we get when we are positioned wrongly in relationship to those stories. When I get attached to the law, or when I get attached to my stories, when I when I choose the law or choose the stories over over my life or or life in general or the lives of the people that I love, uh, then those stories are no longer they're no longer. <laughs> tools for the sake of love, but they end up uh, they end up producing death rather than meeting the needs of life. Um, so as, as, a, as a practical, that's from 30,000 feet, uh, as kind of practical uh, daily religious practice, the, the work of a religious life boils down to not expunging those stories from my life, but kind of constantly reminding myself that those stories are just stories. They, my mind is going to produce them. That's inevitable. The law is there. It's kind of a repository for our shared stories. Uh, uh, but that my life is not the same thing as those stories. And those stories can be put to work for the sake of love. And when I do, they're good. Uh, but when those stories are put to work for some other purpose, uh, for instance, to, to decide what is or isn't deserved, uh, then, then those stories are part of the trap that religion itself is, de is designed to, to liberate me from. Uh, and it's the question in the end, not so much of, of whether or not I can successfully get my life to, to match in every respect all the details of those stories. That very version of what a religious life looks like is problematic. I think it's a question of whether or not I can change my relationship to the demands of, of that law and of those stories. Can I change my relationship to those demands in a way that frees them up to be used for the sake of love rather than for mm. the sake of, uh, of hurting myself and other people? I'm curious, and I, I was thinking about this as you two were talking, if, if um, you know, maybe like a, a mindfulness practice of some sort may play a role here. I, I think, you know, the, the idea that I think in Mormonism or, you know, in the restored gospel tradition, we have, uh, we have a very keen sense that we are much more than just our bodies. Like we're not, we're not just our bodies. There's something more there, but I don't think we necessarily have a, a keen sense that we are not our thoughts. Like, I think for a lot of us, we, whatever's going on in our heads, that's, that's us. And I think that the idea that we are, we're not our thoughts either we're not just not our bodies, we're also not our thoughts, is rooted in, you know, Eastern tradition, but has been popularized in recent years, you know, here in the U.S. and elsewhere by Eckhart Tolle and others, um, is, and there's this idea that plays into it of, of mindfulness, where we're, we're actually making a, a thoughtful practice, or not, not thoughtful by definition, but we're making a deliberate practice of sort of uh, saying there's nothing going on in our minds right now, and is that, could that potentially be useful in disassociating ourselves from our, our stories as well as our thoughts, or are our thoughts our stories, you know? Or the, is that the same thing? I think Jesus, uh, Jesus, it turns out, is a good model here for what a Christian life looks like. Uh, and Jesus encapsulates this very clearly and very simply and very straightforwardly in the prayer of all prayers in the Garden of Gethsemane, mm. uh, when he patterns for us not just what a prayer looks like, but what a religious life looks like. And a prayer looks like saying this. It looks like saying, thy will be done, not mine. Thy life be lived, not my story. Right? And that, that work uh, through the course of a day 
uh, of putting down again and again my attachment to my will in order to meet the needs of the world as it presents itself to me in love. That's a religious life. That's, that's what the actual work of a religious life looks like. Now we have, we have formal practices uh, that help us to do this, right? The, that help us to shift our position in relationship to our own stories and, and to the demands of the law uh, and that put us in a position to love other people when they're things like praying, right? Where you, where you try not to do that just in a general way, but you literally set aside time to, to, to say, not my will today, yeah. but mine. Or we, you, have, you set aside time for devotional reading in which instead of doing what you want to do or reading what you want to read, yeah. uh, you read really old stories about God that maybe you can barely get your head around. Uh, that disabuse you of the idea that your way of thinking about the world is, is the only way, or maybe especially God's way, right? And you, you look for opportunities to serve, and you gather the whole family together, as complicated as it is, and then you do that together for five minutes, uh, despite the, the children bouncing off the wall, or you put people in white shirts and ties, and you take them to church on Sunday, and you make them sit still for an hour and a half, and maybe even deny them Cheerios for the length of the entire, for the entire meeting, to, to disabuse them of the idea that it's their will that's, that's done, not yours. That's too far. Uh, yeah, too far. Okay. <laughs> but you, just, you look for a thousand ways, right, in the course of, in the course of your day, and it, it, yeah. it, it comes back pretty straightforwardly to all the things that we always say, that you have to do in order to live a religious life, to read and to pray and to go to church and to do your ministering, uh, but to take them up as a way of meeting other people's needs mm -hmm. uh, and even your own, rather than taking them up as a way of proving to God that you do or yeah. don't deserve something. Yeah, that it's such a small adjustment. I, I just love that. You could do, it could look exactly the same from the outside and it's just a world of difference. One is an experience of freedom and one is an experience of sin and captivity. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. So uh, the thy will be done thing when you, I, I just want to, will you just talk about this a little bit more? Like I, I, I'm wondering, you know, when, when something personally, when something comes up and you just, you're resisting it, like you can feel the tension, you can feel the resistance. You like just want this thing to be different mm -hmm. is faith putting all your hope in in this idea that God could change it for you? Or is faith putting all your trust in just, you don't know what's going to happen. Like I, I've, I always feel this, like, you know, am I, I don't have enough faith. So my prayer isn't going to be answered, but, but is it even, is that even faith to like trust that God could change this for me? And, and is, is faith just even, it's like on an, on a next level, it's, it's an even bigger faith, which is that I can trust God with my life period. And, so I can totally, I need to totally accept this thing that happened. Do you know what I mean? I, I'm always worried about this lack that I just don't have enough faith to change the thing I want to change because, because I'm not sure that that's what I'm supposed to be believing and hoping that God will change, you know? No, <laughs> I do know. I do know. Uh, I think we can take it for granted that God is interested in changing the world. Mm -hmm. I think we can take it for granted that God is interested in changing us. Uh, but I think the ground for any meaningful transformation uh, begins with a kind of deep 
and humble acceptance mm. of how things are and what has been given. Uh, because the very first thing, the very first thing that has to happen in order for me to meet the needs of of this present moment, the very first thing that would have to happen in order for me to to meet the the needs placed on me by this conversation, would be to accept the the context and premise of the conversation. And you can't you can't meet the needs of the thing that you haven't acknowledged and recognized uh, and accepted. Uh, if you if you if you begin from a position of denying the way things are, uh, that prevents you from changing and transforming them. Uh, if you begin from the position of accepting things, perhaps in a pretty radical way, as they are, much of it entirely outside your power, mm -hmm. that empowers you to do what is possible with your own small power, with your own small expression of God's power to, to meet the needs of that situation and change it in ways that, that can be positively changed. Wow. That I love that so much. Faith is acceptance. Acceptance first. Adam, just uh, really quickly, I know we've got to. I know we've got to let you go here soon. But um, Aubrey and I are uh, are parents of young children. Congratulations! And, thank you. <laughs> well, it's been eleven years, so I'm not sure. Uh, really sure but, um, I we think a lot about you know, obviously how to help our kids have a healthy relationship with what we're calling in this conversation, the law, a healthy relationship with, uh, with sin. Um, and guilt. I'm with guilt in particular, for sure. Um, I don't think my relationship has always been that healthy with those, with those things. I think what I called guilt, uh, you know, a lot growing up and, you know, throughout even a lot of my adult life was actually shame. You know, it was, it was inward focused rather than outward focused. Um, do you have, do you have thoughts on, uh, on raising children or, or teaching uh, concepts, you know, that, that would help others, you know, for whom we care and love to think about these things in a, in a way that's productive and, and, and healthy. And broad outlines, it comes back to, you know, the substance of our conversation for the last hour here. Um, I mean, I'd, I wouldn't want my children to have a healthy relationship with sin, uh, because I think that because I think that that sin is, in the end, having an unhealthy relationship with the law. Yeah. Uh, but I would want them to have a healthy relationship with the law, that could, you know, that would involve kind of transformation of the way that they experienced guilt, uh, not as a condemnation, but as a, but as a call, uh, as a call for help. Uh, as, a, as an expression of need that they could help me. Part of that, part of that involves saying the right things and teaching the right things, and maybe you know taking a crack at it if you have the time and the disposition at writing a book for your kids, which you which you try to say some of the things that you'll never actually have a chance to say <laughs> out loud. Uh, but most of it, I think, in the end, boils down to modeling for them what that kind of life looks like. Modeling for them what it looks like to have a healthy relationship to the law. Modeling for them what it looks like for you to have a healthy relationship in terms of your expectations for them in relationship oh, to wow. the law. Uh, and they will, they will feel that right away. They will feel that immediately. 
they will feel that deeply, they will feel it in their bones in terms of whether or not you are treating the law as something that they need to measure up to in order to deserve something from you, or whether or not you're using the law continually in your relationship with them to simply judge what they need in love from you. Wow. Uh, and that's, I mean, none of this is revolutionary, right? I mean, it, it boils down to loving your children. <laughs> it, boils, it boils down to that love being in important ways, unconditional, uh, and showing them how yeah. to use the law in a way that's healthy. Yeah. Wow. I think that's a great place to wrap up. Thank you yeah. so much. I just, I mean, I have to listen to this like four more times and keep letting it soak in. <laughs> thanks we so much, Adam. Appreciate you. Yeah. Thanks for your work and your, um, and for taking an hour with us. That was so great. My pleasure. Hopefully our paths will cross again. Yes. Yes. I hope so. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening to this episode and we hope you enjoyed it. If you want to support Faith Matters, We'd love for you to subscribe to this podcast, like our Facebook page, or subscribe to our YouTube channel. We'd also love a rating on Apple Podcasts or a thumbs up on YouTube if you feel so inclined. Thanks so much for listening. And as always, you can check out more at faithmatters.org.